Um, turn our Bibles to Judges in chapter 15. Uh, Judges and chapter 15. Coming to the last uh, of our studies in Samson, we'll continue with a few more studies in the book of Judges uh, at this time, but the last in our four studies uh, on Samson and particularly thinking of Samson as a type of the Lord Jesus in our communion season. And we're thinking this evening of Samson as a type of the Lord Jesus uh, by his cruel betrayal. And in church history, there are many instances, sadly, of cruel betrayal of God's people. Covenanting times in particular give many instances of God's people being betrayed. People purporting to be devout worshippers and then handing over the leaders of these conventicles uh, to the opposing armies. But the most famous uh, betrayal is the betrayal of William Tyndale, Uh, that most gifted servant of Christ, translating the Bible out of the original languages of the Hebrew and the Greek into English. And the the king of England and the bishop of London did not like his practice. And so he left our shores and he went to Antwerp in, in, in Holland. While he was there, he continued his work and ministry of translating the Bible into the English language. But he was betrayed. The Bishop of London made a deal with Henry Henry Phillips to go and befriend William Tyndale in Antwerp and then sent with Henry Phillips a group of soldiers to apprehend William Tyndale. Henry Phillips came along to Tyndale's accommodation, announced to to Tyndale and, and Tyndale Uh, had come across this man before, uh, that he was hungry but penniless. Tyndale, the kind man that he was, uh, offered to to provide uh, money to to buy food uh, to Henry, uh, and they both agreed to go down to the the local inn uh, to buy a pot of stew. Henry Phillips steered William Tyndale uh, through the the back streets uh, of Antwerp until they came to a very close alleyway and allowed William Tyndale to go before him. And in going before him, he was arrested by the soldiers. Tyndale turned to to run away, and there he was confronted with the glaring smile of Henry Phillips. And Tyndale felt the betrayal. A man he trusted, a man he had defended, a man he had provided Funds to selling him for his own advance and need. And perhaps in your life you have experienced this within a family member, perhaps within school, friends have turned their backs on you. Once you did all things together and now they don't want to know you. They've moved on to, to something else which they consider as more important. And all of these experiences from church history and from our own experience can give us insight into that further element of suffering in the life of our Savior. That besides all the other things that he suffered for our redemption was this, that he was betrayed. 
And the, and the, and the wonderful and important thing about chapter 15 of Samson's experience is that it is inspired. And every detail of this experience has a place, a reason, a purpose. And as we stand on the mountain and look out over the big picture of God's redemption and see the betrayal of Jesus on the high point, we can see the connections between this inspired account of Samson's betrayal and the betrayal of Jesus. There is a foreshadowing, there is an overlap of the details between Jesus' experience an intentional overlap. No, not something that we are making up and with, with miraculous exegesis, digging out of the text that's not there, but intentionally. God was always teaching his people through prophecy, through type, through character, what his Messiah will be like, what his Messiah will experience, what his Messiah will suffer. And with the vantage point of the New Testament, we look back and we can see in all the scriptures insights into the person and work of Jesus. And so we come to our last study, this, this experience of Samson, of cruel betrayal found in Judges uh, chapter 15. And we want to think of these four aspects of this, the causes of his betrayal, the company of the betrayal, and the contents of the betrayal, and the consequences of the betrayal. And immediately you'll be thinking of this in relation to Jesus Christ and his betrayal, which we read in Matthew chapter 26. So let's think first of all of the cause or causes of the betrayal of Samson. Uh, found in verse number 9 of chapter 15. Uh, and there's two causes uh, in the paragraph here. One is, is that of the, the Philistines wanting revenge. They'd had enough of Samson. He, he tormented the life out of them. Uh, he'd given that riddle which they, they couldn't work out because Samson was the only one there with the lion and the honey. No one else knew about this. It was an impossible riddle for anyone to, to get the answer to. And they were humiliated by this. They couldn't work it out. Their finest minds, their, their largest brains, it was beyond them. And they had to, had to pressure, pressurize his wife to, to give them the answer to this. He had killed 30 of their men down in Amalek. He had married one of their daughters, uh, he had burned their grain. They'd had enough of them. They wanted revenge. They, they had no gripe with Israel. They had no beef uh, with the, the, the rest of the, the people of God. It was just Samson they wanted. And so they, they gathered their army. They, they crossed the border from the, the land of the Philistines into the land of Judah. And they, they come to the city of Lehi, which was eight miles from Etam, the rock where Samson was hiding. And they, they deploy their troops. The verse number nine says, they came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. One cause of his betrayal was this action of the Philistines. They wanted revenge. 
Perhaps they thought Samson would maybe be coming to, to Lehi for supplies. Perhaps their, their plan of attack was that if they put pressure on Lehi, then they will go and, and, and get Samson for them, which is actually what happened. But one cause of the betrayal was the, the thirst of the Philistines for blood. But then a second cause was the weakness of the people of Judah. How would they react to the arrival of the Philistines on their doorstep? They'd come across the border. And now they were calling out for for Samson who had just displayed such might and power in God's strength against the Philistines. Here was God's champion. Here was God's judge. Here was God's savior. Are they going to follow him? Are they going to throw in their lot behind him? Instead, they they choose the easy road, the way of false peace, the desire to keep the status quo. And they themselves, in order to placate the Philistines, send 3,000 of their soldiers down to the rock of Etam, where Samson is sheltering. They side with the Philistines in their purpose and their intention. Rather than rise up against the Philistines and throw in their lot behind Samson as as the God-ordained ruler and deliverer of their time. See how they rebuke him in verse 11. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? He's disrupted the status quo. You're going to cause a war here, Samson, by your behavior. They want things to remain just as they were. They were willing to be submissive to the Philistines and let the enemies of God rule over them. And so this cause of betrayal has a a double source. One in the Philistines who want revenge and the other cause being God's people, desirous of the status quo. We'll get rid of this troublemaker. We'll give to them what they want. We'll placate them by handing over, betraying Samson to them. Michael Heseltine on one occasion said of Neil Kinnock that not only they weren't friends, (laughs) by any way, as you're you're about about to find out here, he said of him that not only was he a windbag, but he was a windsock. Whatever way opinion was blowing within society, Neil Kinnock jumped in it to advance himself, to promote his power. And the, the people of Judah are like that in this instance. They're going with the status quo, maintaining the peace, not ruffling feathers. Then Jesus' time, the same mindset lay behind his betrayal and execution, didn't it? The Pharisees were concerned that Jesus going around claiming that he was king, pointed by God, the Savior, the Son of God. This was upsetting the status quo. 
The Romans were ruling over them. Things were fine. They could go to the shops. They could take their children to the school in safety. This Jesus was upsetting the peace between Rome and and, and Israel. And we read in, in John 11, what are we to do, they're saying. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So from that day on, John 11 says, they sought to put him to death. Betrayed to maintain a false peace. And sometimes perhaps we also choose the cheap peace. Some parents perhaps, myself, might not rebuke a sin in our children just to maintain peace in the home. But it's a false peace. It's a cheap peace. And sometimes as, as elders, we, we, we're frightened to, to address some sin in a member who belongs to a prominent church family just to maintain the status quo. But it's a false peace. It's a cheap peace. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Hidden love is so important in a family. The parents loving their children, the elders loving the members unconditionally. The hidden love, the constant, unconditional love is so important, so valuable, but there's something more valuable than that. Better is open rebuke than secret Hidden love. So the causes of the betrayal from the Philistines and also from the church. But secondly, the company of the betrayal, and, and we've touched on this a, a little bit already. And, and this is, you know, this is the this is the, the connection to, to, to Jesus here. It's the men of Judah that hand them over. company of the betrayal. You know, we can understand the other betrayals, perhaps, in in Samson's life. The the woman from Timnah, she was a Philistine, and the Philistines wanted the answer to the riddle. The the woman from Gaza, she was a a Philistine too, Delilah, and and, and, and they were putting pressure on her, and it was her people, and, and she was on their side. But the men of Judah, this is different. They're Samson's connections. They belong to the same nation, the same covenant people. They're in the same church of Christ in the Old Testament. And it's them that betray him, that hand him over. Gary Webb comments on the the pathos in verse number 12. We have come down to bind you. We, the men of Judah, we, your relations and connections, have come down to bind you. 
They could have chosen to back Samson, of course, to awake from their stupor, to throw their weight behind him, God's appointed champion. And if any people, and this is the significant point in, in, this, in this narrative here, if any people should have backed Samson out of all the tribes, it should have been the people of Judah. For right at the start of Judges, and we've not been there yet, nowhere near it, but but right at the start of the book of Judges, in the second verse, there's this question that's asked. You know, Joyce has done his work, Joyce has passed on, and and the question's asked, well, what are we going to do now? Who's going to continue this work of conquering the land and driving out the the pagan nations? And the answer comes from God in chapter 1, verse 2. The men of Judah. Judah will go first. Judah will lead the nation in overcoming the enemies of Israel. And here they are. The people who should have been leading the opposition against the Philistines. The people who should be first in line to stand behind Samson and drive out these enemies in the power of Almighty God. It's these men. And this makes it all the sadder, all the more reprehensible. Men who have a divine mandate, men who are commanded by God to drive out the enemies of Israel. It's them that betray him to their enemies. Betrayal has marked the news, hasn't it? In the past weeks, Holly and Philip falling out. And they've been using this word. Using it off the IT, of ITV, using it off each other. They felt betrayed. Once colleagues, once friends, once operating in union with one purpose, but now at loggerheads, that friendship blown apart. And here we have the men of Judah, should have been behind Samson, who in the early stages of Judah, of Judges, were leading the attack against the enemies of Israel. But now they've weakened, softened, compromised. And they're betraying the God-appointed Savior over to their enemies. And what an insight into the experience of Jesus was one of the twelve that betrayed him. Not one of the Sadducees or the Pharisees, but one of his closest disciples. He betrayed him. And Jesus feels the pain of this. The Gospels give us the history of Jesus. The Psalms give us the heart of Jesus. And in Psalm 55 that the writer speaks prophetically with words which, which Jesus will, will use and, and reflect on as he experiences betrayal. It is not an enemy, the psalm says, who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, My companion, my familiar friend, we used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. The company of the betrayed, the men of Judah, who should have been with Samson, 
helping him at his side, at his shoulder. It's them that hand him over. And he wasn't the last to feel it, was he? And Jesus wasn't the last. And perhaps you too have felt let down by friends, by family, perhaps by the church in your time of need, in your time of weakness, perhaps you've felt there's been no one there to help you, to support you. Maybe you've felt betrayed by your whole experience. Well, we can't condone that, but we can point out this. That at this very moment of forsakenness, Samson was the nearest he had ever been to God. Perhaps in your experience of abandonment, it will be the nearest you will ever be or have ever been to God. Thirdly, the contents of the betrayal. In the text, you you possibly will have noticed the emphasis on binding him. How How did they do this? Hand over. Well, they bound him, verse 13, with two new ropes. The the drama's here, new ropes. Here's this man who has uh, shown such great strength and power. They're not just going to bring him down to the the Philistines. They're they're afraid of what he might do to them. He might change his mind. This might be a plot, a trick. Or or they're afraid of what he might do to the the Philistines. You know, they they want to show good faith to them. You know, they want to to curry their favor. They they want to hand him over in this constricted state. And and so they bind him. And that binding's a a theme uh, throughout the the story of Samson. And at the very end, as we thought of this morning, we find him shackled, standing between the pillars in the house of Dagon. This man of power being bound. It's a, a humiliation, a low point, a bringing down, binding him. When they see this, the Philistines rejoice in verse number 14. When he came to Lehah, they came shouting to meet him. And the word shouting is the word used of a battle cry, of a charge, of the soldiers running at their enemy with glee, with anticipation, full of confidence. And here they run out to meet Samson. Here he is, bound, chained, shackled, tied by these two ropes. Here is our enemy, the one who has tormented us. Finally, we receive him, we control him, we overcome him. He seems to be on his own in verse number 14. See the the pronoun used when he came to Leah, not when they came to Leah. The men of Judah backed off. (laughs) They're not getting involved in this here. Here's this this character and, 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 and things have not just gone ordinarily in his life and so they They push him down towards Leah in the camp of the Philistines on his own. And they're well in the background. He walks towards them, humbled, tied, restricted, limited. And it's a feature of people today being taken out of the prison van into the courtyard. And Many of them ask, the officers, can you not take the handcuffs off? It's a sign of the lowest humiliation. 
sign of condemnation, a sign of guilt, a sign of humiliation. And here is Samson. The text is emphasizing he's bound. Then the Gospels, this very point is emphasized in three of the Gospels. Not only was Jesus arrested, not only was Jesus tried before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and before Herod, but the text again and again emphasizes they bound him. Sign of humiliation, the Son of God, the miracle worker. They bound him. They tied his hands. When our minds run through the passages of Scripture, is there a connection between that binding and the binding of unrepentant sinners as they're cast out into the outer darkness? Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 22. Take them, bind them, throw them into the outer darkness. Jesus says this added element of binding the unrepentant and casting them out into hell it is emphasized in the text in Matthew 22. And then in chapter 26 we read, Jesus was bound. And this is this, this connection that we are to make in our redemptive understanding that we deserve to be bound and to be cast out into outer darkness. But Jesus stands in our place. And he is bound as the bearer of our sin, humbled before Almighty God. And boys and girls, men and women, we trust in him. We trust in the one who was bound so that we will never be bound and cast out from God. Andrea Solaria painted the bound Christ In 1509, the picture hangs in the Museum of Art in Philadelphia, worth millions. It's an element emphasized in in Samson's experience and in the experience of Jesus. But isn't our interaction with one another to be the very opposite? We're not to be binding one another. We're not to be humbling one another. We're to be freeing one another. We're to be releasing one another from the stresses that we carry, from the worries that we have, from the responsibilities that lie upon us, from the commitments and duties that come our way. We're to be drawing alongside one another, not binding one another and laying on humiliation and stress on one another, but by love and compassion and prayer, releasing one another from our burdens. The contents of the betrayal, he was bound. And lastly, the consequence of the betrayal. What happens then? Here he is. Solitary figure, betrayed. The heart, has got, he's got to have felt it. Men of Judah handing him over to the Philistines. And he knows, he knows what, what naturally would happen. What happened to Saul when they conquered Saul. They took off his head and hung up his body. Philistines would humiliate any champion that they conquered. And he knew that's what lay ahead. And his brothers pointed him in that direction 
But the Philistines and the men of Judah had no thought of God. In that moment of encounter with the Philistines in the camp of Lehi, verse 14, the Spirit of God steps in. Here is God's appointed leader. Here is God's saviour. And the third person of the Trinity comes down upon this solitary figure in a moment and transforms him into this person of power and ability. And what a victory we have here, killing a thousand men on his own, empowered by God. And he does it with the fresh bone of a donkey. And this is emphasized in the text. It's not a brittle bone of the donkey which would, which would snap at the, the first encounter, but a fresh bone that was pliable and yet powerful. And he uses this as a tool in his victory. And it's not just a tool. The reference seems to be combining a range of, of animals which are utilized by Samson in his role. He utilizes uh, the, the foxes earlier in the chapter. He's utilized the, the lion and overpowered the lion in the previous chapter. Now he uses the jawbone of a donkey in this victory over the Philistines. Gary Webb points out, and, and, and he is the comedy to get if you want one on. On, uh, on Judges, he, he links these references to the donkey and to the foxes and to the lion, all under the power of Samson to Adam and his dominion over the animal kingdom. Here's another Adam. Here's another representative. Here's another one raised up by God. Here's another type, another picture, another foreshadowing of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who will come. When the people hear this, they, they change their tune, don't they? In verse number 20, and they make Samson their judge, and he judges Israel for 20 years. But in that experience of victory, we have Samson praying. And, and what a prayer it is. He comes before God in verse number 18. You have granted this great salvation. Here he is seeing his role, his position within God's plan. Announced to his, his, his father and mother in chapter 13 that he will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. He gets it now. This great salvation. And we can hear the redemptive language here. You have granted by the hand of your servant. As we said earlier, in this moment of betrayal, of abandonment, of loneliness, of being left to his own, he's the closest to God he has ever been. He trusts in God as Israel did for water. And God provided for him. In the story of Joseph in one place, there is this repeated phrase, the Lord was with him. And you say, well, there's nothing unusual about that because God is with his people in the ups and downs of life. But what is significant about the use of that phrase in the story of Joseph, as you probably know, is that it comes at the darkest point in his life. When he's imprisoned, 
wrongly accused three times in chapter 39 of Genesis, it says, the Lord was with him. Here is Samson at the nadir of his experience, the lowest point of his life, betrayed by his brothers of Judah, left alone to the mercy of the Philistines. But at that low point of his experience, God is with him, hears his cry, enables him to overcome and glorify God in his tremendous victory. And we can be assured that God is with us. He hears our prayer. He will use us even in the lowest abandoned point of our experience. And so we're to see Christ in Samson. We're to see him in every page of scripture, in every character of the Bible, either by contrast or by comparison. It is the the reformed approach uh, to this. Luther, Calvin, Clowney, Barry Webb, they see Christ all over this story and so are we to see him here. We see Christ in Samson. But more than this, we're to see Christ in ourselves. The Christ we see in the scriptures here is to be reflected and worked in and allowed to transform our experience and our life. And Christ will be seen in us as we see Christ in every page of scripture. As I said, I've been reading Charles Simeon's biography and Some of you will be really interested in this, that he went for a swim in the local river every day. I'm not going to adopt that practice. But another practice he had was that he got up at four o'clock in the morning. And he was so disciplined at doing this that he made an agreement with himself that if he didn't get up at four o'clock in the morning, he would give a hundred pounds to some poor person in the town of Cambridge. Why did he go up then? To spend time in God's word. And by doing that, his life, his character was transformed. We're to see Christ in Samson. We're to see Christ in the scriptures. And by doing that, we will see Christ in ourselves.